I was reminded in staff meeting this week by our Director of Communications, Gray Morgan, of a story of John Calvin on September 13th, 1541. Calvin returned to the city of Geneva after a three-year hiatus, and upon returning to his beloved city, he picked up right where he left off in his preaching. Well, today you will not have to wait three years for us to return to the book of James, where we'll be spending our time discussing what I would like to call the mother sending her child on the first day of school section of James. What do I mean by this? Um, You know, often when we read the pastoral letters, the epistles, we will notice that the writers conclude their letters filled with a large section of commands thrown together at the last moment, sort of like a mom hurrying her final life wisdom on her child right before the child gets on the school bus. Make friends. Don't forget to smile. Choose slowly. But it would be a mistake at the end of James chapter 5 to feel disconnected with the rest of the letter, what we've discussed so far. James is leading us in this conclusion to see the key theme of his letter, the Christian life and what Jesus' life was all about, that the Christian must be faithful to the end. So in chapter 1, we're supposed to be faithful in doing the word, not just hearing the word. In chapter 2, that we must have a faithful faith and faithful works. Chapter 3, that we must have faithful tongues to speak the same way that Christ has called us to. Chapter 4, to be faithful to God and not the world. And where we left off in chapter 5, that we are faithful in the midst of oppression and avoid believing that the possessions we have gives us eternal hope. And so now we arrive in our text today. And the rest of this chapter is is tying together all these themes as he concludes with where he started in chapter 1 that the Christian is to endure and wait upon the Lord. So with that, let's turn to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bible is in front of you. This is on page 1013. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. And let's all stand as we hear from God's Word together this morning. This is the Word of the living God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together. Father, we need you in the waiting, and we need you to show us how to wait. Lord, as we experience the sufferings, failures, and disappointments of this life, show us the blessings of such trials. Show us the man of sorrows, the one who exemplified enduring well. And may all of us who are in need of compassion and mercy receive it today as we find it in the person of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. We'll start today by noting that perhaps the single biggest objection to Christianity in America, especially in the last 100 years or so, although the objection is as old as Scripture itself, 
is the problem of evil. For those unfamiliar with the objection, it goes something like this. It's sort of a threefold argument. Number one, if God is perfectly good and morally righteous, there should be a world with no evil or suffering. Number two, obviously evil and suffering exists in our world. And number three, therefore, as the atheist might say, therefore God is either not perfectly good or morally righteous, or he doesn't exist because evil and suffering exists. Now, while the discussion of the problem of evil is, is beyond the scope of today's text or sermon, it certainly can become the very first thing in our mind when we endure hardship and difficulty. We, we repeat the refrain of Psalm 13, where we ask the Lord, How long? How long, O Lord? Or even the words of Jesus, Matthew 17, 17, when he asked the question of how long must he stay with the unbelieving and perverse generation of his age? Suffering and hardship are inevitable in the Christian life. And often, Scripture doesn't give us a clear answer of the why of suffering, but rather he shows us how to endure it well. And that's the heart of today's passage here today. So we won't solve the problem of evil today, but we may learn from Scripture how to be faithful to endure the problem of evil today. So with that, there, there are four things that I want to get through in our text here today. Uh, number one, the command to wait upon the Lord in suffering. Number two, the dangers of waiting upon the Lord in suffering. Number three, the assurances of waiting upon the Lord in suffering. And number four, the blessings of waiting upon the Lord in suffering. So the command, the dangers, the assurances, and the blessings. So let's start first with the command. In this text, we see here is that the word patient or patience, not once, not twice, but four times in these verses— and that we are in verse 7 given the imperative to be patient, but not just a, a mere patience for one own's end, but, but the patience for the coming of the Lord. And that's the reason why patience until the coming of the Lord is important. It, it, the reason why it, it's important is that it grounds us in the true relief of suffering and evil in our world. You see, if the command here from James was simply for patience because be patient because you'll get your, what you want in the end, or be patient because your revenge will be realized, or be patient because you need to live a life of sort of monastic self-denial, then this command would be no different than the rest of the world's advice on enduring suffering. You see, James is calling the people of God who are scattered across the dispersion into 12 tribes, living sort of in, in different pockets where pagan synchronism was all over the place, that, that the patience they have in enduring suffering in the name of the Lord will receive its final joy and reward, not in their own relief of suffering, but in the realization of God's coming kingdom. That the true hope of any church is that suffering and evil will be ultimately crushed underneath the feet of Christ because Christ has already done so through the cross. And what this means is that the Christian must be like the farmer. The analogy he gives in this text. The farmer plants its crop and must simply wait. It can't rush the process. It they, they can't gather the fruit in the early rains because that would be too soon. Or they can't pluck them in the late, before the late rains because not enough time has passed. The farmer must endure both seasons of the storm in order to receive the reward. 
Now, we have to say, by the way, that this is far beyond our comprehension for most of us who did not grow in an agrarian or farm-like culture. Uh, we hate any sense of delay or waiting as an inconvenience, as, as suffering, as, as torturous. Um, maybe perhaps the, the, the best modern-day example I can give is to think of the idea that an Uber driver would take 15 minutes to arrive to us. Oh my gosh, that seems so outrageous, right? Never mind the miracle that we're just tapping a wireless screen that can magically transport us to any place for a price, right? Or, when, even worse than that, when our Amazon Prime two-day package comes on the third day. It's the absolute worst. We hate waiting. We hate waiting. Which is why James is so careful to emphasize that in the midst of our suffering, we are called to see that God's timing is so unlike our very own. His arrival is not the signal that he is late. It's not the signal that he is lazy. It's not the signal that he is unsympathetic, though it often feel that way for us. No, no, no. The coming of the Lord is a mercy to us because it reminds us that suffering and evil are not in our control to fix as though we could remove it. You know, perhaps the, one of the worst tendencies of today is the expectation that, that we should not have to be patient at all, that we should not have to suffer at all, that we can rush through the process of suffering. Like fast food, cheap fixes, and cutting corners, we do this to the very detriment of our bodies and souls. There are no quick fixes in the suffering. Only in Christianity do we see a worldview to suffer well, not for our own sake, but for the Lord's glory. All the worldviews have some form of reductionistic view of suffering that does not call us to suffer well. Athletes, they say pain is an obstacle, so muscle through it. The social reformer says pain is avoidable, so let's fix it. The pantheist says pain is illusory, so don't believe it. The fatalist says pain is inevitable, so embrace it. The moralist says pain is your fault, so fix you. But only in Christianity do we see that pain is a deep mystery. So look to God for joy. When we, as verse 8 says, establish our hearts and stop trying to fix suffering apart from God, we will set our eyes to the only true hope that we have in a world ravaged by the impacts of sin and death. But what happens when we don't wait upon the Lord? Verse 9 keenly reminds us of the dangers, this is our second point, the dangers of waiting upon the Lord that can come for the Christian if we lose our gaze of Christ. When we stop being patient, we can start looking for something, or in the case of verse 9, someone to blame for the sufferings that we face here. The word grumbling here in the text is, is not just a, a sort of a mere complaint. It's rather, it carries with the force of it condemnation. That only if my brother or sister in Christ wasn't the cause of my suffering, then everything would be right again. And or in other words, we look a lot like the world when we try and pin the blame of suffering and evil upon each other rather than looking for our perfect judge to exact his justice. We see this so evidently in our world today that evil and suffering is the problem of the person over there. 
But James here is specifically addressing the church to look differently than the world around us. When we become entangled in the blame game, we take a place that we were never meant to take, the place and the seat of perfect righteous judgment. James' reminder here at the end of verse 9 is a call to see that there is only one judge over those that would cause suffering or that those who would enact evil on others. And it's only when we place the authority of judgment in his hands will we find the resolve to endure. To go even further on this, Scripture identifies in certain places that there might not even be a discernible person to blame for suffering and evil. You see, it doesn't fit neatly into the single explanations of the why and what it happens, but just that we are in a fallen world and the effects of those sins and its devastation are all around us. Suffering isn't rational because suffering can't be logically or thoughtfully explained away in a way that leaves us satisfied. And by the way, as an aside, this is why when we face the unimaginable, the worst thing that you can do who is grieving and who is suffering is tell them that it's logical, that there is no comfort or relief from it. Why? Because there is no relief in the cold reality of the cause. Scripture reminds us over and over again, like Job's friends, that such an exercise of the why of suffering is often folly. The better pathway is to as the psalmist does in two-thirds of the Psalms of Lament, is to lift our eyes to the heaven and remember that our help comes not from the ways that we can explain it, but our help comes from the Lord. So rather than demanding an answer for our suffering and impatience, James reminds us here to take heart from the assurances that we have awaiting upon the Lord. The assurances, this is point three of our sermon today. And that looking to Scripture and seeing the prophets of old who followed the same pathway of suffering. And when we do so, we will see what patience and endurance looks like. But we will also see an astonishing amount of suffering if you examine it. In fact, it's so astonishing that it almost seems comical if it weren't true. You remember the sufferings of the Old Testament prophets, right? Right? Isaiah dealt with the effects of the Assyrian war his entire ministry. Jeremiah's entire ministry yielded so little fruit that over the period of 70 years, he had to write lamentations because of it. Ezekiel had to eat bread made from the fire of human dung, true story. Daniel spent most of his life in the service of a pagan king, and by the way, avoiding getting eaten by literal lions. Hosea married an unfaithful wife who was a prostitute. Joel lives during the swarms of locust plagues and famine. Amos, a common sheepherder, is tasked talking to the elite hierarchy about the upcoming judgment of the Lord. Good luck with that. Obadiah witnesses the fall of Jerusalem. Jonas literally spent days in the belly of a whale. Micah is called to preach against the northern and southern kingdoms of God's people to be hated essentially by everyone. Nahum has to tell Nineveh, the city that repented in Jonah, that went back to idolatry, that turns out, by the way, God isn't going to spare you after all. Habakkuk literally spends his entire prophetic ministry wondering why evil is allowed to to prosper in his age. Zephaniah sees the downfall of Israel and has to tell the kingdom of Judah, by the way, you're next. Haggai has to lead the Israelite building campaign, which you've ever served on a building committee or helped out on a church workday. Know that that comes with a particular set of sufferings. Zechariah deals with Persian foreign policy, which if you think the situation in Russia is bad, don't even get started with Persia back in 518 BC. And Malachi had to tell a group of people who thought they were believers that they were not 
and we're living in dead orthodoxy. Unbelievable levels of suffering if it weren't true. And yet James wants us to look at them as an example. Why? Not because these prophets were perfect men. Far from it, especially Jonah, right? Because despite their faults and struggles and all the ways that we could look at their failings, they remained steadfast and waiting on the Lord. You see, their suffering wasn't a marker of their reason to flee God, but rather their sufferings fueled their mission. They still delivered the message of God to the people. Their sufferings were were not a hindrance to the purposes and mission of God's compassion and faithfulness and mercy to generation and generation of unfaithful Israelites. Their sufferings were the catalysts to all who looked on them to consider the glory of God. And in it, we can see God's voice speaking to us much more clearly than he would if our lives we're simply prosperous with no problems at all. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. You know, every couple of years or so, I... I get to watch a documentary called The Dropbox. And if you haven't seen it yet, um, just go watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, it's a story about a pastor named Lee jong Rock, uh, who saw that newly born babies were left on the streets of Seoul, South Korea. And he began adopting them by leaving a safe dropbox outside of his house where the babies could be safely placed and, and given proper care. He and his wife wound up adopting 19 children with disabilities most of which have severe mental or physical challenges. This on top of the fact that his firstborn son was born with severe cerebral palsy and even spent the first 14 years of his life living out of a hospital and needed 24-hour care and still does just simply to live. What is simply incredible about this story is learning to understand the mystery of joy through suffering, that even finding God's purpose in the difficulty is not impossible. When asked about why God would allow this pastor's first son to be born, knowing that his, his life would be extremely difficult, Pastor Lee replies that his son's life was to give purpose to the mission of his adoption agency, which to date in 2019 has saved over 1,500 babies in Seoul, in Seoul South Korea. He says all of this became because of his one son whom society and the world would say, why would you you make this son continue to live? It's too difficult. It's too challenging. It's too much suffering. And yet, this one son's life sparked a movement to save the lives of so many other abandoned and discarded babies on the street. Pastor Lee and his wife waited upon the Lord in their suffering and in turn demonstrated the love of Christ to so many. When asked why he would endure so much, Pastor Lee simply states the beautiful truth that we all know. Why? Because God himself adopted me. And that leads us to our final point today, the blessing of waiting upon the Lord in suffering. 
Verse 11 asks us to consider those who were blessed and remain steadfast because of their endurance. And so, too, the promise for the church today to remain steadfast in the face of trials today. You see, when we look not for the ending of our suffering to be made complete, and instead look to the Savior who has made all things complete on the cross for us, we will realize God's blessing and care for us even in the midst of deep, deep difficulty. We will remember in our lives the greatest blessing that we could ever receive, the forgiveness of sins, the curtain torn in two, the righteousness of God bestowed onto undeserved people was birthed from the steadfast Son of God. He who suffered and died on our behalf so that we may face a day when all suffering would cease at his return. We see our sufferings in the sufferings of our Savior. He who embraced physical, emotional, and spiritual torment and knows what we have endured, who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. We see the God-man who is not so distant from us that he cannot sympathize with our sufferings, but rather a God who is incarnational and knows exactly the kind of things you had to endure and tells us to lay our burdens on him because he's been there and he will give you rest. You see, James points us to Job in the final portion of our text. Right? We see a God who heals Job not because of healing in terms of possessions or the riches that Job gets back. We often think that that's the healing in the book of Job, but it's not. The healing in the book of Job is God supplying God's presence to Job to speak truth and life back into him. We see Job, he understands this. He understands that his purpose of the suffering is understood, that his suffering isn't about the why question, but it's about the exclamation that we hope one day all of us could exclaim in Job chapter 42, verse 5. You remember it, what Job says? He says, my eyes, my ears, sorry, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Church family, today you might be coming here with the weight of the world on your shoulders. You may be going through unimaginable suffering and difficulty. But the beauty and the hope of the Word of God today is to know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How do we know this? We know this because we see Jesus' compassion and grace towards us. We see this because Jesus endured the suffering of the cross. We know that even as we carry our own crosses in following Him, that our suffering isn't meaningless. It isn't the universe emptiness, but rather it is the fulfilling the purpose of God for His own glory and our good in ways that we can only begin to understand and yet we will fully realize when the Lord comes again that we will be His people. And He will be our God. That He will wipe away every tear from our eye. And there will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the command, the blessing, the assurance we have in waiting upon You. And as we wait, 
let us look and lift our eyes to heaven. And let us exclaim that our only help comes from the Lord. Lord, help your church to endure in trying times, in a changing world, as we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Father, teach us the endurance of Christ. And in doing so, find the joy that we were meant to find in living and loving and experiencing you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.